Buildings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, welcome to Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn. This is episode 14 of Buildings on Air. Um, we took a brief break last month, but we're back here live in the studio uh, at Co Prosperity Sphere, um, where preparations are underway for uh, Krampusnacht celebrations tonight, um, which should be a very fun time. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm here in the studio with Marinella Dupril, and um, we're about to talk w- about her article, um, and its haters. Um, <laughs> the article is called The Politics of Architecture Are Not a Matter of Taste. Um, and then we'll be talking later in the show with Steve Vance of Streets Blog Chicago and Chicago Cityscape. We'll be talking about um, how information can help us sort of grapple with the forces of politics and economy in Chicago and beyond, um, and TIF districts and all kinds of other things. It's going to be great to talk to Steve. Then uh, we'll be joined by Paolo Aguirre of Borderless Studio, um, who's going to discuss uh, the civic action uh, jump-starting city open workshop series that she's been organizing, um, along with some of her other uh, recent work that has to do with um, public school closings in Chicago. Um, Paolo's great, and um, st- stay tuned for that. Uh, then, lastly, we'll be joined uh, with Anne Louis, by Anne Louis and Craig Reschke of Future Firm, um, as we are every month, and we'll answer your listener questions about architecture. So there's still time to get those in. Um, hit us up on Twitter at Buildings on Air, B L D G S on Air. And yeah, so without further ado, let's hop into the show. Um, Marianelle, how's it going? Good. <clears throat> How are you? I'm doing excellent. Um, so you wrote this article. Maybe you can give us some background. Um, the article is a response to um, an, an article that was published in Current Affairs called Why You Hate Contemporary Architecture by Brianna Rennix and Nathan Robinson. Um, typically, I really like the kind of takes and opinions that come out of current affairs, um, but this was a kind of weird thing. It was um, we've, we've discussed on the show um, with Kate Wagner and others um, sort of the alt-right, um, weird, re- trying to reclaim classical architecture and all of these things. Um, and this was the kind of like left wing trying to do that. And they wrote this incre- incredibly long, way longer than it needed to be, sort of piece that, that talked about why contemporary architecture was bad. Um, can you summarize their piece and talk about why it sort of engendered so much um feeling in you that you felt compelled to write a response? Sure. Um, Yeah, so the piece is really long. I had forgotten how long until I looked at it again today. Um, But basically their argument is that contemporary architecture is inherently bad, that it's ugly and it's oppressive, and that liking it is immoral. Um, and, um, And they go through... A kind of series of different examples that they use to sort of prove their point. Um, and they lump together, and this is something that I took issue with in, in the response that I wrote, but they they lump together um, everything from basically like late modernism to today under uh, the moniker of contemporary architecture. So yeah, as if contemporary architecture is a kind of monolithic, <laughs> ideology or style or something right like there's no possible framework in which that kind of holds up to any kind of scrutiny no exactly and it's totally uh, 
lumping all of those very different types of architectures and types of sort of buildings um, totally ignores the kind of historical and material context out yeah. of which those buildings emerged. And so, um, and then they, so they, they go through examples of, you know, things that they are architectures that they buildings that they think are really bad and, um, and always sort of tangentially or diagonally compare them to, buildings that they think are good, which are the kind of canonical examples that we're used to seeing um, in defenses of classical architecture by the alt-right, like you mentioned before, but also just the kinds of um, uh, buildings that are sort of tourist attractions in any cities, right? Like it's it's sort of a generic um, idea of what makes for good or beautiful architecture. And um, yeah, what were some of the examples that they cited? Um, the- so they're like Gothic cathedrals, like by just like a- as a blanket, and then like the pyramids. <laughs> uh, <laughs> we shouldn't laugh; it's not very nice <laughs> to laugh. Uh, but uh, let's see, the pyramids. Um, they also talk about um, like Venice as a kind of uh, like per example of like a perfect city, St. Paul's Cathedral, um, you know, and they make these um, kind of sweeping the Alhambra. They but they make these kind of like sweeping, amazingly simplistic statements about what makes architecture good, right? So, um, so things like they had like a rule of thumb for architects that the more the greener and more lush a place the more beautiful it is. And then they had another one that was like, usually the more elaborate and, inter- and intricate a place is, the more mesmerizing it is. And it's all very extremely simplistic and entirely divorced from any kind of analysis about what what might have brought about an incredibly intricate and elaborate Gothic cathedral and who yeah. might have sponsored it and who are the people that built it and like what systems of power or politics or you know even culture produce such buildings right and and they and blame architects right for for how bad or good architecture is and they say that architects have bad ideas and bad taste and that they don't listen to the opinions of quote most people who they claim um they claim that most people like old buildings best and and they know a good thing when they see it right um and it's very totally essentializing and extremely condescending. Um, and then, so, yeah, so they blame architects. And then they also enumerate uh, fears that architects have that make buildings bad. So I'm going to read them because I think that this is pretty amazing. So the fear of beauty. <laughs> I'm so afraid of beauty. Yeah. As arch- just I'm, ter- qu- I'm quaking. Every time I see a beautiful building, I, you know, I just thinking about, position. <laughs> I'm quaking just thinking about beauty. Um, then the fear of ornament, the fear of tradition, which is really also very vague and confusing. What does tradition even mean in this context? Yeah. Um, the fear of symmetry. And the fear of lo- looking foolish, um, and then they they um they, this this list of fears is part of is a subset of a list of proposed solutions that they give to ar- architects, which I'm not going to read because it is um, incredibly mind numbing. Um, 
but you know, it's just as simplistic as some of the things that I was saying before. Right. But um, but your 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 basic presupposition with the article is not that the these the things that they're pointing out are. Um, uh, the faults of architects, right? But that there's a, a relationship between architecture, aesthetics, politics, and economy that sort of um, circumscribes what an architect does and also um, sort of how we perceive beauty in the first place, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so so you, you wrote this response, uh, the politics of architecture are not a matter of taste. It was published in Common Edge um, in mid-November. Um, and and walk walk us through your sort of response to to um, uh, this current affairs piece. Yeah, um, big shout out to Martin Peterson at uh, um, Common Edge, and also Eva Fisher, um, who was really um, just super smart in um, suggesting that I reach out to Common Edge about publishing this. Um, so, I, so I, you know, I started talking a little in the article. I started talking a little bit about um, those sort of with a problem with the way that they use terms as blankets so like the contemporary architecture tradition they kind of wield these things very clumsily um but they um they also you know um like you were saying um totally ignore the kind of um power structures and economic structures that produce the buildings both the buildings that they complement and the buildings that they say are bad so for example in the case of um uh, Venice, which they say is, you know, uh, the sort of epitome of what we should be striving for and we should uh, build more, build more of, right, um, was entirely um, uh, sponsored. Its construction was entirely sponsored by the elite and ruling class. Sure. Um, and if they purport to have a kind of left um, analysis of it, then they should know that and they should uh, right. be critical of that and right. not just and not just make the aesthetic argument that it's good right. <laughs> because it's like right. pretty. Yeah, it doesn't like necessarily discount any of the architectural merits of those projects, but you have to be that, that they were sort of commissioned by someone with money. That's kind of just the nature of architecture yeah. as a whole. But um, um, it's it's and I, I think your your piece argues this that. <clears throat> that's that's a commonality between contemporary architecture and uh, the architecture of the past. That there's no grand difference. Architecture is not now mm-hmm. just now a tool of the elite. It it kind it of always, always has, has been. been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, you know, as I was reading it, I was pretty in my head. I kept thinking like, well, these the Brianna Renix and Nathan J. Robinson who wrote the piece, um, they must think that everyone who lived like everyone in medieval times they must think that everybody in medieval times had like a beautifully ornamented house sure. which is absolutely not the case uh and, right. and the reason we don't see medieval homes anymore is because they were made of yeah. trash and, and <laughs> the bad buildings were torn down exactly 500 years ago or maybe not or even longer. on purpose they just fell down because they were horrible um so yeah. so anyway and so and there's a kind of uh, at the same time there's a kind of ignorance that um, a lot of the buildings that they cite as being bad, so like um, Zaha Hadid's sort of sculptural buildings and then Frank Gehry's equally sculptural buildings and then Peter Eisenman's kind of uh, deconstructivist um, architecture, which is, um, I think, considered by a lot of people to be offensive, even architects. Um, right. So they, um, they ignore that um, these buildings are, I don't know if we could call them sort of 
tools of speculation or if we could call them like uh, tool. Uh, they're kind of investment tools. Yeah, like right? re- real estate speculation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And they're, um, they garner investment. And so um, I talked a tiny bit, interestingly uh, enough, because it's something that I didn't think that I would end up talking about in the article, but I, I talked a tiny bit about the um, kind of Bilbao effect. Mm-hmm. So Frank Gehry built, I guess now, probably almost like 20 years ago, um, uh, Guggenheim Bilbao. He designed uh, the Guggenheim in Bilbao in Spain. And after that, the city saw a spike in tourism and attracted all these people. And there was like a kind of big economic sort of boom there that was then um sort of so desirable that other cities tried to recreate it by commissioning gary um, works or similarly sort of iconic works um but um it's a really simplistic way right of understanding and um thinking about the complex forces that influence a city's development uh because it like places so much power on just like the iconicity of a building and the way that a building looks mm-hmm. um and um yeah. yeah so what you're i mean what so what you're saying is that you know w- when they're sort of blame they falsely sort of equate like I, I, yeah i don't know any architect who really loves frank gary like or would see, i know and me so neither. it's really it's really strange because they they even say in the article the architect's favorite architect frank gary mm-hmm. and um you know and, and and frankly i think if they they are kind of trying to pull the most most people like this card which i don't know what standing they think they have to make that kind of claim but um i think even when it comes to contemporary architecture i'd venture i guess that like a lot of non-architects really like frank gary as a contemporary architect yeah, my, because it's novel my mom <laughs> who I think is listening loves Frank Gehry. Yeah. yeah. She's like one time she was like, Yeah, I think that's kinda cool. Which yeah. is totally fine. It is kinda cool. It's like bent it's metal. Novel. Where yeah. do you see that? Right. But but it's it's but I think it, it it's it's interesting to note that that um, yeah, when you're talking about architecture and these kinds of examples that they hold up, like it, it has it, it has very little to do with the architect, right? Like it's really all of these these architects, is you know the word that we use. Mm-hmm. They they can they become elevated to a kind of uh, brand, you know, like the, like what's what's the substantive mm-hmm. difference between like uh, Frank Gehry and like you know Gucci, right? Like yeah. I don't know, like yeah. you know, it's it's you put a name on something. And you sell, you can sell it for more money, and this is the interest that developers have exactly in or, this kind of building. Yes, yeah. exactly. So in in my article, I talk about those kinds of buildings as being one example in which high design can, um, or in which architecture attracts sort of investment, and is and highly designed buildings are made possible. But these highly designed buildings are sort of right. relegated to having to be iconic and kind of irreverent in order to attract that investment. Yeah. And then the other thing I talk about is um, the kind of counter to that, which they they sort of also talk about, which are you know sort of more pedestrian examples of quote unquote contemporary architecture uh, in like. Um, so like things like hospitals or I don't know city halls or apartment buildings that um, have that attract um, investment as well, but only but can only be designed so far and can only be designed with the goal of turning a profit for the developers. Right. 
Um, and yeah. there's not an incentive. There's no like feeling of awe that makes a developer money. Right. Yeah. And in, in those in those cases. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And uh, yeah. And I, I think it's a really interesting point. It proved to be the kind of most controversial point of your response. And, yeah. and so I, I think people uh, the, the, the response online to about there's no feeling of all that makes a developer money. It was weird to hear a bunch of architects take issue with that because. Yeah, because it's true. <laughs> I don't know why. Like, I think we would be so much better off if we said, if we were able to to say and think about it in, in the following way. It is absolutely true that somebody being mesmerized by your building isn't going to make you money. Does that mean that you shouldn't make a building that's going to mesmerize someone? No. <laughs> but because we live in right. capitalism, everything we do has to turn a profit. Yeah. Which is a part of the point that I was making, right? Also, and, uh, and that, yeah, and did not set well with architects. It's sure, true, yeah, because well, because <laughs> wait, and and I, you're you know you're you're presently penning a kind of response, uh, so so I think we're kind of talking now about um, a, a response that was also yeah. published to your article, to, a response published to your response. Yeah, people also got really mad by uh, Lance what's, Hosey. Lance Hosey, Hosey called mm-hmm. "What Critics of Contemporary Architecture Are Missing: The Value of Design." Uh-huh. And, and I, so I think we're sort of bridging into a conversation about that and you're presently sort of penning a response to that response mm-hmm. so it's the response to the response to the response to the response no i think you put okay. two one two oh, money but okay. yeah, yeah, yeah yeah but uh yeah i you know I, or maybe I, you didn't i don't know it's okay but but i think the interesting thing right is is to point out like hey like i'm pointing out this fact that exists not for all architects in the system but for most architects in the system uh-huh. and that's the way that it is right now whether we like it or not and i want and and you know you you we want to change that status quo. There's mm-hmm. no question about it. Mm-hmm. But it also doesn't do us any good to to, to avoid to avoid, pretend like that doesn't exist yeah. and to pretend like architecture is some sort of like a really valuable part of like you know a, a, of a developer's you know pro, pro forma when they're kind of figuring mm-hmm. out whether they're going to invest in something. Mm-hmm. It has more to do with like land prices, like rentable space, yep. and all of these other things yep. that architects and and also. You know, we would be totally out of a job if we didn't just have the requirement to if you didn't need an architect stamp on a drawing. Yeah. Right. So the 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 feelings do not enter into the equation. And um, I think we begrudge that fact. um, But but we also recognize it as true. If you could make money from somebody's feelings, there would be no entrance fee uh, to go into any nice museums or churches. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> I was trying to think of I was trying to think of a concrete example like, OK, I'm sorry, I'm going to stop. But no. yeah. So Lance Hosey, do you want me to summarize? The, sure. He um, I think. Well, I think Hosey gets it. I mean, in some ways, I think he gets that there is a close relationship between architecture and capitalism because there's a close relationship between capitalism and everything. But he understands the pressures that capitalism exerts on uh, the building industry, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And uh, but he also in this response that he wrote, um, which, like you said, is called what critics of contemporary architecture are missing the value of design. He um, also, you know, makes all of these claims about the ways in which um, architecture could save 
um, like people or corporations money. Um, so, for example, he says that um, best practices in energy efficiency could save nearly $500 billion annually. Um, and then um, he also later says, you know, that uh, high, he talks a lot about high performance buildings. Um, so um, these are buildings that are considered to be sort of like energy saving and like environmentally friendly, uh, which I will um, also also argue is not the same as being beautiful. Um, but anyway, he says that these buildings, um, especially if they're like workplaces, they, you know, are better for mental health and they uh increase productivity um, and they um, are also better for stress and that, you know, um, companies with high performance facilities um, have a better rate of retention of employees and they also have a better rate of attracting like top talent. Um, and I really don't doubt that all of those things are true. I'm sure that they are and I'm sure that, you know, there have been studies, but um, I also don't doubt that most architects don't have the time or money or space or whatever to conduct and apply any of this research. And I think most of what Hosey claims is still largely unimplemented because $500 billion in savings for someone implies a $500 billion loss for someone else. And if we're talking about energy efficiency, that $500 billion loss is probably largely like to fossil fuel companies. Right. And I will add here that BP is sponsoring the right. Chicago Biennial right. of Architecture. Right. So, um, or the Chicago Architectural yeah. Biennial. Well, and it's, and it's, it's not that these things work in a kind of conspiratorial fashion, right? No. It's, it's a, it's, it's in stru- structural thinking is, 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 is challenging. But what, what it means is that if, you know, you pull a string in the fossil fuel industry, Right then, it, it kind of has ripple effects through the legal environment of of this country and every country, through our through our culture, uh, through um, um, the banks, through everything. Right, mm-hmm. and so it, it ends up um, landing in architecture as kind of sustainability being a value, but it being almost impossible to implement mm-hmm. in any meaningful way. Yes. Yep. Right. You know. So so what you get, you know, we call it greenwashing, right? Yes. In architecture, you get sort of a, a weird token wind wind windmill exactly. or solar panel or like a on a token, building like green roof and yeah and don't which don't wrong. do anything for yeah. they don't change the status quo they don't hurt a bottom line for a fossil fuel company but they say like oh we're, we're we have these values and so like yeah, that's that's some of the ways in which this kind of stuff ends up being manifest and a developer's never going to put the amount of solar panels just to round out the thought the uh, the amount of solar panels um on a building that like will be impactful because it doesn't make financial sense for them it because it's not the kind of thing that makes financial sense in it's not the kind of things that banks will write loans for. And so all, all of these things are connected in a, in a very sort of mm-hmm. meaningful way. And then the, you have the direct sort of irony of BP uh, sponsoring yeah, the Chicago just, architecture. But I know that's like that's one one instance where it does come together quite directly. It's but, not very critical of me to have said that, but I just wanted to to point it out yeah um but yeah and i, I mean i was i wanted to add i mean don't get me wrong i think mental health improvement is amazing and i think that de-stressing making less stressful workplaces is incredible mm. and we should absolutely do those things but we should you know 
be able to do them just because they are good and not because they might save someone money or right. produce more productive workers. We should just do them because it's good. And we can't um, a lot yeah, of the time. We can't because because, it's not, because it doesn't make people money. Exactly. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's it's quite the paradox, right? And so, so I'm wondering how, how you understand or how you see a way out of this paradox because it's almost like um, – and we have to we almost have to make architecture relevant in in this economy we almost have to make the sales pitch even at the same time as we're trying to yeah. d- destroy the system right i mean it's it's like an inside outside thing i mean mm-hmm. and i and i i also don't know that you have to pick and choose i think that uh picking and choosing is a kind of politics of purity that doesn't make sense yeah. but um, I don't know. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think I, I've been thinking a lot about this because I, I don't know that. So I wrote a response to Hosey, which will hopefully be published next week. Um, and I, I didn't exactly um, provide a kind of solution. But um, I did talk a little bit about um, someone else who thinks a lot about these things. Um, Phil Bernstein, um, who, um, you know, he... Yeah. Go shout ahead. out shout out Phil. He's uh he's one of the board members of the Architecture Lab, yeah. which is a group we frequently talk about on the show. That yeah. we're both members of, full disclosure. <laughs> yes. Um and uh you know, he makes the claim that we need to position architects directly in the systems of delivery. Um and my um my argument would be that we need to change the systems themselves and that um we need to exist in a the economic system that's not capitalism. Sure. Um, and I think that that comes about through uh, long um, years of um, class struggle. Right. Um, and which is not going to happen overnight. Yeah. Um, and so it's not necessarily a specifically a solution to the problem of, of architecture. It's probably um, a would be yeah. hopefully a solution to a lot of other problems too. <laughs> sure, to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Uh, but um, but yeah, I think I think that the way that that starts, however, is through something that I've talked about when I've been on the show before, which is uh, architecture workers unions. Yeah. Um, and um, workers uniting both in the best interest of. It, both in their best interest, but also potentially in the best interest of uh, the profession and the discipline and then the practice of architecture. Right. Um, right. Because then, because that that's actually a leverage point. That's exactly. not just that's not just sort of moralistic right. about you can you can demand sort of better working conditions for yourself and and also and also others. Well, you because um, you you actually have the a, a leverage in in exactly. the union in the you contract. You can say like, I'm not going. We're yeah. not going to work on this building. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and I th- I think it's I yeah I'm certainly in that camp as as, as you well know, um, and I, I think Phil's Phil's position on it is interesting too because I I don't know that you mentioned it directly but he basically suggests that we rewrite sort of how we think about fees in architecture how architects make money uh-huh. to align uh-huh. it with saving money so that architects yeah. can actually um, uh, have, be sort of uh, our, our expertise is more directly linked to the kind of way that we charge for services yeah. and the values kind of get rewritten um, over time so that, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, we can do these good things and they're not a kind of weird aberration. Um, 
but which and it seems like those two things go go hand in hand, right? That they can that they have to be developed together in some sort of way. Yeah, I think that's true. I I don't have anything to add to it because it's something that I'm like nascently thinking about because mm-hmm. I'm also skeptical of of that way of getting paid as architects because it doesn't necessarily incentivize doing um right work that is aesthetically good sure right yeah so yeah that's very true I, th- I think um the other the last thing we have like five minutes left and the last thing i, I kind of wanted to mention we went to this awesome panel um the faac um i i won't say how they pronounce it on radio it sounds like a curse word <laughs> i don't want the fcc coming after me um or the station <laughs> yeah <laughs> producer jamie would uh would would murder me on the spot um but i i think um uh, yeah, the, the, it, it was a fantastic panel, and they're sort of talking about teaching, um, um, uh, teaching and and studying and doing history um, um, in, in a kind of feminist way, um, in a way that um, is sort of uh, lifting up uh, lots of other lots of folks who ha- have never been lifted up by architecture before. Uh-huh. So it was it was really interesting, but they they kind of focused the whole panel on. This issue of the the object. Before we talk about this, though, sure. can, and it's related to a feminist yeah. issue. Can we talk about how everyone thought that uh, you and I co-wrote? Oh yeah, that was so weird. So <laughs> okay, yeah. I mean, because I I did give it's you some notes. Tangentially related, but yeah, no, I think it's directly related. It's super. It was a it was a super weird thing, and I'm, so you yeah, so you gave me some notes, which we do frequently. Yeah, we share notes all the time. Um and. I gave you a thank you at the end of the piece, which you normally do for me also. You've yeah. probably done for me more times than I've done that for you. Yeah. Um, and several people, yeah. like I would say probably at least five people, yeah. were like assumed that we had co-written it. And no. we're like, this look at this piece from these two people no. or like the authors, plural. Yeah. Um and and People who should know better than that, yeah. And it was incredibly off-putting, and no one has done that to you no, when you never. I, when you've given me never. a thank you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, I just wanted to mention it because it was actually pretty, pretty fascinating. Yeah, and a little and upsetting for, and for both of us. Pretty yeah. upsetting for yeah, that's true. Um, and, and I I think yeah, I you you, you unambiguously authored that piece uh, just to <laughs> to say that yeah, and um, you know I we do. Div- develop and talk about all these ideas together all the time yeah but um uh, but but we are at the end of the day two different people um, yeah. who th- think very similarly about things but, but also but, very differently very about differently. things and we disagree yeah. on a lot of things we do and which is why we don't write everything together yeah um and um it was incredibly off-putting to have people assume that you'd cur- and then i got mad about it on twitter yeah and I said that um, being a woman um, and writing something like this means that uh, when you give um, a dude a note, um, people will think that uh, he's your co-author. But if the dude gives you a note, people will think you're his secretary. Yeah. Which I don't know if anyone thinks I'm your secretary. I hope not. But I bet at least <laughs> one person does. <laughs> no, no. Uh, yeah, but but yeah, uh, to, to yeah, that's an important note. I'm glad we 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 conspired about mentioning that on the show. So I'm glad we did. Um, but, but yeah, so the object. So yeah, so this panel they were they had four. Um, 
Um, for um, women scholars of architecture come and present uh, a, a bit about their work. Um, and um, uh, they just started off with a kind of short uh, five-minute provocation oriented on an object, um, but only one of them actually uh, chose to talk about um, right. objects, uh, an object. Yeah. But it, but I bring it up because we only have a few minutes. I brought uh -huh. I bring it up because it, we had a kind of interesting follow-up conversation about disciplinary knowledge. Oh, yep. And um, what that really means in, in the kind of context of, of these political conversations. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, because the object, right, or, or site or place or any of these other sorts of ideas uh -huh. are like sort of discrete forms of disciplinary knowledge in architecture, like stuff that is just architecture, yeah. um, to put it in, uh -huh. in lay terms. But none of the things that they were talking about right, yesterday right. were just architecture, yeah. which is incredibly fascinating. The panel is really good. It was really good, But to uh, be clear. <laughs> yeah, to be totally clear. But it did make me think a lot about um, how... There is this kind of tendency to try to transcend architecture. And in fact, somebody at, who was at the panel mentioned this as well. And, um, you know, there's this tendency toward like interdisciplinarity mm -hmm. and definitely like holding that like above all else. Um, and which has been very important to me and my work and my development as an academic was very important. The idea of interdisciplinarity. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, but I don't know if it's if we don't just need to struggle more with the uh, particular vicissitudes of our own discipline sure uh at the same time that we attempt to fold in other methods and other ways of thinking yeah. about things and other uh, ways of incorporating right well and i i think that that kind of means you know it, it, well the question i think you're posing is why don't we let the architecture be the architecture and 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 sort of think about that and its implications and and um and, and specificities mm -hmm. and let the activism be the activism. Yeah. And and there there are moments where those things talk and cross over, but um but but I think frequently they we we kind of think about them as one and the same. Yeah. And, and they're not. Uh, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's it's maybe less a um like a a choice and and more of just like a kind of like constant pressure that mm -hmm. um is maybe generative by itself yeah yeah and i think i think too um just um i don't know there's a lot of potential already like just within the discipline in and of itself and there's a lot of things that we uh we focus too much on like the um the other thing when we talk about interdisciplinarity sure i think yeah so it's like Politics and economics, we focus too much on, or sorry, like architecture and politics, we focus too much on politics sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, well, on that note, food for thought. Um, <laughs> thanks for coming in and, and, and talking about this article and um, look forward to reading um, the response to the response to the response I think we settled. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm, four, like four responses. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This is it, it, exactly not the kind of um, like public voice that i ever wanted to be but whatever well here we are <laughs> here we are it's an important <laughs> contribution um and uh thanks for being on building center we'll be back after a break it's the most magical time of the year late november oh the lump in membership drive that does not sound super magical listen here jess 
the sounds of this very radio station can be life-changing. Why, before they started telling my life story, I was nothing but a low-down bum with a crush on an IDOT worker. Uh, TMI, Kyle. Tim? All right. Lumpin' Radio's programming makes you laugh. It makes you cry. Oh, it's heartwarming. And and supporting them is cheaper than a bowl of jambalaya. When is the last time you purchased a meal? That's not the point. Go to lumpinradio.com and sign up now. I promise you I won't regret it. You mean they won't regret it. How do, how do I know what they're going to regret, Jess? I regret this already. We are back with Buildings on Air, the show where we talk about architecture and frequently politics. And we're joined in the studio now by Stephen Vance. Um, how, how's it going, Stephen? Hi, Kiefer. Yeah, happy to have you on the show. Um, I've been a kind of longtime follower of your work on uh, the ki- in the kind of media landscape of Chicago architecture and urbanism. Um, and yeah, maybe we can kick it off. You can give us a, a little bio. I'll do it inside the actor's studio style. Who is Steve Vance? <laughs> uh, well, I've lived in Chicago for 11 years now in a bunch of different neighborhoods, and I... Uh, recently, about three years ago, switched from transportation planning and, and advocacy in transportation about biking and walking and transit. Yeah. And I got started to get more into real estate and property development. Um, and But now I, I still kind of do both. So right. I, I write for Streets Blog Chicago, and then I created Chicago Cityscape, which is a data portal yeah. for property and neighborhood development data. Yeah, it's great, and and I think one one of the uh, the thing about Streets Blog that I've always really appreciated is you know at, in architecture school we learn about all of these kinds of progressive urban design moves and ideas and everything, and um, you know rare, rarely do you see them get put in practice or kind of mapped on to like spaces we know right in in the city, and and I've always appreciated um, the way that your writing kind of does that that po- points out uh, potentials and pitfalls in our, our current kind of infrastructure it ma- makes it seem very sort of tangible um and and i think it's it's been a, a real force for good in the city um but but i'm especially happy to have you on the show to talk about uh, chicago cityscape um so can you give us a kind of overview of of what chicago cityscape is and um how, how it works what the inspiration was yeah well, the inspiration is is has changed a lot. Uh, it was originally designed as a way for me to find a contractor to install <laughs> um, a bicycle footrest that my friend and I designed. Yeah, and so I <laughs> I made a list of all the contractors in the city based on the city's own list, and then tried to figure out ways to make it more useful. Like, why should I pick one contractor over a over a different contractor? Sure. And then it, it turned into something wildly different over the <laughs> yeah, last no three years. <laughs> it, it did strike me as the kind of uh, pr- a project that was born out of a deep personal curiosity about the way that these kinds of things work and, um, uh, you know, city permits and processes and everything. And so I, I guess um, – there's so much information on the website. So, you know, people can sort of log onto it and they can find what permits have been pulled, what TIF projects are happening, sort of what's going through city council in terms of zoning changes. Um, and it's all there and it's in a kind of very like accessible format. Um, and I think I, I'm sort of generally skeptical when people talk about like big data and data mm-hmm. as like a way to change things. Like it's, I think it usually gets kind of mentioned as this like abstract panacea, like, oh, if we just had some data, it'd be cool. (laughs) So one thing data cannot do is talk to you about itself and describe itself and say, 
hey, this is what's in me, and you can pull out these insights. Yeah. Yeah, and so, like, the city of Chicago publishes a lot of data. Uh, they have this kind of data portal, which is amazing, but it, it does not describe itself at all. It's just kind of lots of spreadsheets, and I, I imagine uh, you, you pull quite a bit from, from that. Um, so, is, like, it, it is kind of curatorial in that way, right? There's a lot of interpretation that needs to happen. Yeah. So... Um, I I love the city's data portal, and without it, cityscape would not be possible. Yeah, it also uses data from other sources, uh, county, state, federal. There are several others even after that. Um, but it puts it all in one place. Yeah, and uh, people ask me like when I meet with uh, housing advocates or housing developers. They ask me, like, oh, can you, like, make this for DuPage County or for this <laughs> other place that I'm yeah. going to mention? And I say, well, is the data there? Right. And also, I don't live there, so are you going to be the experts that is going to help me interpret the data that's outside the city of sure. Chicago or outside Cook County? Yeah. So that's the other issue is that, yeah, we can throw all this data together, but we still have to figure out what it means. Otherwise, yeah. I've just replicated a sure. data portal <laughs> right right as in, in in all of its opaqueness yeah and uh, so so i think um i, I, I want to talk about tiff districts yeah because yeah. <laughs> yeah, i i think i think that one of the one of the sort of uh, among the many fascinating insights that can be gleaned from chicago cityscape there's a lot of stuff about sort of tiff uh financing and 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 um tiff quickly define well maybe you can quickly define a tiff district i don't know yes. yeah um so imagine that um this area collects all these property taxes and then they put a tiff district on that area all the property taxes under that amount goes to where it normally goes city colleges the library the water reclamation district the city itself the public schools any new property tax value that's generated after that time that the district is installed goes to a special bank account that the city administration has full control over. Right. And they use it to kind of uh, fund public projects, private projects, um, sometimes it's street improvements. Um, such so as certain divvy stations studio. have yeah. been paid for yeah. with local TIF money. Also, TIF money can be used uh, as a direct grant to small businesses to mm -hmm. hire more employees so that they can oh, expand and sell more products. Right. So I'm curious if in your kind of tracking of TIF developments and, and projects that get TIF money, if uh, you've noticed any pattern, if kind of uh, the, the tool that you've developed, Cityscape, has, has kind of led you to any conclusions about this, and, and maybe just even as an, as an observer um, of the city. Um, yeah, so I wouldn't say that any of my observations or analysis ha would pass a rigorous academic Yeah level, but um, a common criticism of TIF is that they go to fund already profitable businesses yeah, or businesses that probably don't need TIF. Yeah. And that definitely happens. Um, but also, I think when I last did this analysis a couple of years ago, um, most money seems to go to public infrastructure like schools. Hmm. Uh, Mayor Daly built lots of schools using TIF money. Uh -huh. And, but one thing that I don't like 
is that it also goes to build strip malls. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I guess we were talking about this on, on sort of Twitter the other day. <laughs> yeah, so I've noticed that there were like a Home Depot or a Menards or two, or maybe it was a Target yeah. or something. And it, it even specified that it was going to contribute to... It was, so TIFF will not pay for the entire thing of a strip yeah, mall because right. it's got to be public and private investment. Right. But it said that the strip mall in general would have over 700 car parking spaces. Yeah. Never will 700 different drivers be at a Home Depot sure. at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, what I mean, what do you think is sort of driving that? Like, ha- what, what, what are the kind of, yeah. Well, I think there's the, the corporate side has a model and they just build that only that model. The model comes with a store that's like 70,000 square feet or larger. Right. And it comes with 700 parking spaces, sure. and they don't deviate from that. Right, right. Yeah, and I guess there's, may- there's maybe also zoning code requirements that are sort of outdated as well. Uh, but it, it's interesting that public money would go to pay for those things. So, um, I, And I guess, do you see the kind of put, putting the, the information out there, um, both with Streetsblog and Cityscape, as a kind of m- means of equipping advocates and and the public to make informed decisions absolutely yeah cool and and have you have there been instances where you've seen that kind of happen or is it sort of something more more like you you put something out in the world that's amazing and you kind of hope that it precipitates through i mean i know we we've used it in studio projects and school and everything to positive ends so i I can at least give you that that thumbs up (laughs) thanks uh it's kind of difficult because uh, not everyone who uses your data talks to you about it. Sure. They don't always email you back saying <laughs> with questions or just saying, hey, I did this thing. Yeah. Um, but what I usually like to do is whenever I add a new data set to Cityscape, I like to talk about it either in a blog post or on Twitter right. to just seed some ideas with some basic uh, stories from the data. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so... Um, for example, you can use it to look up all the other properties that a specific landlord might own. Oh, interesting. However, yeah. that's still difficult because they'll use a different LLC incorporation for each property, sure. but they often share names in some way. So there uh, is a tool actually to try to find those matches between those names. Interesting. Yeah. And what a, what a phenomenal tool for like uh, community activists Um who are trying to like you know fight slumlords or what have you, right? Um, it it could also be used by uh, property investors who want to do due diligence yeah. on an investment. Yeah, yeah, and so yeah, and and it's interesting because I guess that's that's one of the other fascinating things about Cityscape is the kind of in, information is really powerful, but uh, I, I think. Um, um, it, it is it is sort of neutral and so even as you curate it it's this kind of neutral thing that you're throwing out there so i guess like what what do you think about the kind of agency of the the tool itself uh, does it have any or is it kind of you know like how, how do you how do you approach that kind of question like what if what if uh, people started using it to um i don't know help get more you know giant parking lots in the city or something i would how would you kind of feel well, about that it's definitely it's it's almost it's impossible to um analyze data without bias yeah. there's there's always the bias mainly of the person you know sure analyzing that data and i think 
when you when you read what I'm writing on the blog, yeah, uh, the Cityscape blog, um, it's pretty clear I have personally um, desires for how the city should be developed. Yeah, for example, with the city has a, a transit oriented development law uh-huh. that allows developers to get free density bonuses, meaning that they can build a few more apartments sure. than the zoning code normally allows if they build within two blocks of a train station. Right. But I've also analyzed that the zoning code around a lot of the Brown Line stations doesn't allow apartments at all. Interesting. So yeah. it just it just requires uh, or not requires, but it only allows single family homes to develop. Sure. So that's not a good use of tra- uh, land around a train station. Right. More people should have access to that land. Sure. So then I built a zoning assessment tool yeah. to make it really easy to see <laughs> how much land around a train station is zoned for apartments or zoned for single family homes. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, and, and just, we only have a couple minutes left, but, you know, I, I think, um, Probably there's a lot of architects who who always want to do this kind of analysis and and really appreciate it um, and 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 you've actually done it. So I guess do you have like any sort of tips for how to wrangle these things? Like where did you learn how to code this kind of stuff? Like is there any kind of like adv- advice that you can give to people who are approaching similar questions about data and zoning and politics and economy and and all of these things that you've been able to kind of weave together with this tool? Yeah, I well. I don't, I can't say to like go to code school or right. anything, but um, I I can say that don't be afraid to ask me or other <laughs> people who deal with a lot of data because we know how difficult it can be to get yeah. started. But it often starts with a question, sure. and you just need to ask that question. Right. Yes, uh, Buildings on Air is a big fan of appreciating expertise where it exists, and so um, Stephen Vance, Vance, we're, we're we've been a uh, Happy to have your expertise on the show, and um, hopefully architects will avail themselves of it. Um, it's a great tool. And uh, anyway, thanks thanks for being on Buildings on Air. Thanks for having me. Anna. Yeah, we'll be back after a, a little break. You're listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM Lumpen Radio, and we're back with Buildings on Air. Um, if you're listening to the podcast version of that show later on, sometime in the future, one of the things that you will certainly miss is producer Jamie's excellently curated break music. So that's a, 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 an incentive for you to listen live. <laughs> yes, you just listen live to all the tunes I play making fun of the guests. Yes. <laughs> yeah, fun fun little Easter egg. Um, but we're, we're here in the studio with Paula Aguirre. Paula, um, longtime friend. We've been on, and uh, we travel in the same architecture circles, been on reviews together. Um, and I, and I, always, I always enjoy chatting with you, and I'm happy that we can finally do it. Um, here on Buildings on Air. Uh, how's it going? Hi. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. We finally made it happen. We finally made is, it yes, happen. <laughs> yes, and after a few attempts, but uh, we're here. I'm excited yeah. and looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, same. And so, so Paula, for, for uh, our listeners who might not know, um, introduce yourself. Uh, tell us what you do, how you do it, who you are. Well... Um, I don't know what I do have all the time, but I'm, I'm going to try. Uh, I'm an architectural and urban designer. Um, my background, it's obviously in architecture, but 
I tend to describe myself always by saying my career started in working for government. Mm. Poor thing. Um, to, you know, <laughs> just right out of school, my one of my first jobs was working for government government, and in my hometown, Chihuahua, Mexico. Yeah. So that, um, that was very fundamental for me to become a passionate about, you know, public service, public yeah. life, uh, and just anything that has to do with with working for the public. Sure. So, um, and I, I'm an import to Chicago. Mm. So I've been only in the city for uh, six years now. Wow. <laughs> Time flies by. Um, I wasn't supposed to stay. I, I was hired by Skidmore Owens and Merrill to yeah. work for their city design group, which was a fantastic opportunity to come and um, know about uh, a city like Chicago and working in global master planning, regional master planning, um, and then, I, then I, in that time, I met my husband. So now Chicago is home. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing, and I, I just we joke about it uh, constantly. Now I'm, be, I'm in between Chi towns, Chicago yeah. and Chihuahua. <laughs> so that, that's something meaningful, you know. Yeah. The life give you, gives you hints about um, what you should be doing or where you should be staying and spending yeah. your energy. Yeah. Yeah. So I have a um, a year ago, I decided to. Uh, start my own studio which is borderless and it's called borderless for many reasons um well for once i um i'm from a border region between the united states and mexico so that's always been very important for me to establish my geography wherever i go and it keeps pulling me back and thinking constantly about this dynamics not only from the geographic perspective but cultural perspective i feel this idea that I'm always translating. My brain goes crazy sometimes between Spanish and English. Um, when I get tired, I just kind of combine both languages and you don't know what I'm talking about. Um, but it's this cultural translation that yeah. constantly happens to mind. But uh, the, the, when I say cultural, it's everything from politics to architecture to form sure. to design to in, in every single sense. So I, I also work in borderless more in um, or try to work uh, in more interdisciplinary projects. Yeah. And though my background or the strength of my background is in design, from architecture to urban design, practicing a lot in urban planning, I feel I navigate between different fields of practice. So that's just fun. It keeps my work entertaining (laughs) and I'm never bored. And, you know, it... I feel it gives me license yeah. to work in several themes. Yeah, yeah. This this kind of issue of interdisciplinarity um, came up earlier when we were chatting with Marianella, and it, it's always an interesting sort of thing for me to process because I, I I tend to um, like my architecture to just be architecture, even though this is you know even though I, I I'm also very political and like to do activism and everything, and that's also related to architecture. Um, so they're siloed, but also not at all. And then this is a race radio show that's about architecture and politics. And I'm like, no, no, you keep those things separate. <laughs> but I, I've always ad- admired um, uh, your, your ability to kind of weave those things together in, in meaningful ways. Um, and one of the one of the ways that you're doing that now um, is, is through the City Open workshops. And so I, I'm hoping you can sort of tell us about that. Um, I, I think it's a really interesting to think about not just designing for civic engagement, but sort of designing civic engagement itself and that seems to me like it's maybe like the thing that really makes it work uh, yeah yeah no that's very interesting you you actually phrase it really well it's not designing uh, for it's designing with yeah and that's something that comes from um, from other platforms so city open it's it was inspired um, completely 
in Chi Cog Nights. Yeah. I don't know if you have had the opportunities no. to been to. Um, it's a civic tech group that meets at the Merchandise Mart every Tuesday um, diligently. They have over 200 sessions now consecutively. So it's a very impressive. Wow. The energy, uh, the attendance there is over 100 people the couple of times that I've been um able to attend and join but the energy and and the focus of the work it's absolutely impressive so i i attended there with a then colleague now really good friend and partner in crime el ramel and and i was just incredibly inspired like why architects and planners don't do this Mm -hmm. like why don't we do forums of this kind where we just get together you know organically frequently in a consistent basis to work in things that in many ways, they're an outlet. You know, this, yeah. all these participants have their jobs from 9 to 5 and then just find a way to um, organize themselves and work in things that they feel they, it's, yeah. it's important to spend their energy. So we literally, um, you know, in architecture, we say if there's something good, just like copy it yeah. and like put your own, <laughs> you know, put your own um, or create your own version of it or how I like to tell, tell my students, recreate this approach or this diagram, which is another way of saying yeah. copying. But if there's something good already working, it's... It's okay to take that model and, sure. and, and try it out. It will have many um, uh, variables that you can adjust and yeah. edit as you as you go. And that's how we started CD Open Workshop. So we, uh, you know, I, I had I had been collaborating with Archiworks, and there was a space. Uh, we just literally call a, sent out a call out to all our friends. We're doing this. The main purpose was uh, my friend Elle, uh, she's an urban planner by training, mm. and I'm an, I'm an architect, urban designer by training. Mm. So let's bring our friends together. Right. That was the main <laughs> idea. And, yeah. and let's work in what we call open projects. Yeah. And an open project means it can be your commercial, private project. You know, It has to be something civic. It has to be something that anyone can work on because all the information will be public. Mm. So... Um, it was, this, you know, and, and it works from very basic tools, online tools like Google folders. Yeah. Uh, you know, we little by little been learning how to use our communication tools to document basically the work that we do. Mm. But um, when we established this format to do it, we can't commit to do it weekly like the, the guys from um, Chai Cognites do it, which is very impressive. But we do it bi-weekly and we call them seasons. So we meet for eight episodes <laughs> <laughs> in the fall season and in the spring season. So it's kind of like it kind of uh, coincides with um, academic terms, too, which yeah. is fun. So um, and we we just engage with a local organization that needs work. Basically, it's, yeah. a, it's a group of minds. Um, it's a group of professionals with some experience that want to provide pro bono services for local organizations that want something, um, want some support in terms of visioning or like analytical work, sure. uh, anything that they, they it helps them understand sometimes to be better clients. Interesting, you know, yeah. Uh, between architecture, urban design, urban planning. Yeah. Now we're learning. I mean, I am learning tons about civic tech. I, yeah. you know, I. I I dabble with the idea of understanding geographic inf- um, geographic information systems, but you know it's all. I know the high what we call the high level version of it, right? Sure. I don't use it on a day to day basis, but I understand what are the capabilities yeah. of it. So it's been fun um, and meaningful. We we work with two groups in Bronzeville last fall, and we. Um, uh, are trying to constantly engage other mm. organizations. Now, right now, we've been inviting uh, folks from uptown, different organizations from uptown. So, you know, we, we don't have a specific geography. We're not prescribed to a specific geography, but we're constantly inviting. We have an open call for organizations yeah. to come and share their work and what are their needs and how can we help. Yeah. 
So what what have some of the the, the outputs um, and results been? So uh, one really good example was uh, uh, the Brownsville Community uh, Partnership uh, with their leader, a very strong leader, uh, a woman um, called Paula Robinson. And she's an advocate and very vocal and very active. And they just needed... Um, they need a study for a space that they want to create what they call the the center for urban innovation mm. you know but that's a very uh, concept that is very yeah. ambitious and it needed some um kind of framing a framework uh all the ideas are in the head of people like sure. i don't i don't think we're there to give them ideas i think <laughs> everyone has good ideas it's how do you frame those ideas to be presented mm. and be communicated to the audiences that need um they have the funding mm-hmm. to audiences that have the resources so how do we ask for a partnership because um, this idea of building partnerships you know it comes in every planning document uh, forge <laughs> partnerships right nurture <laughs> partnerships yes. like yeah, no one knows what a partnership yeah. how to create a partnership right. and it and it's not no one knows like the pieces or the 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 process to do that it, it has several components and elements yeah. and and it's it, first you need to know what you want right. from that partnership um yeah. so yeah. and and what do you have to give and what what can you ask for right. so it's, it's very simple questions but you know our education yeah. in many ways allows us to understand that not everyone has access to that yeah. that education and that yeah. mentorship yeah, and, and it's almost like a, um, there are very few sort of spaces that um, are there to help you form something that will help you form something else, right? Like it's almost like that sort of very, very basic starting moment where you're bringing people together. Um, it's, it's hard to kind of find a venue to get get folks together and it seems like this is kind of filling that that gap in in meaningful ways right and their participation is fundamental i mean we can't do this i mean we could without them and you know it will be meaningless but their participation and their constant involvement is is critical and the other thing we like to think is you know we're not building we're we didn't create that platform to create a typical or traditional uh, client consultant relationship that is not what we do we are, you know, you have very smart people, uh, people that are very passionate about civicness, openness, publicness, and they have experience. So mm-hmm. that their voices, in a way, it's not they're gonna they're gonna tell you as an organization, oh yeah, you're doing very well. Yeah. Yes, this is what we want to support. No, they're gonna be critical and ask questions also that are hard sometimes from an organizational standpoint. It's like, yeah. oh, am I <laughs> in the right direction, the right yeah. path? And, and you know, it, it's not like every session or every time, but it's important that that cri- space for safe criticism exists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so w- when's the next one coming up? On Monday. Oh, yes. <laughs> very soon. <laughs> so Monday, we meet every Monday. It was so funny to set up the, the, the standing meeting day because all our week, of course, is packed with very cool events around sure. the city. Um, Chai Hack Nights is on Tuesday, so we didn't want to compete with that. So Mondays, every other Monday, yeah. uh, we are in our workshop number seven, um, sorry, number six, and Anjali Rao, who was here. Friend of, of the show. Friend of the show, <laughs> Anjali Rao. She's going to be there. She's apparently preparing some NASA videos that I'm, I've been really daydreaming about. <laughs> so I'm really excited. So she's going to, you know, that's important because we try to curate our guests as part of the workshop to learn something new, something that will help us to, de- to advance and mm. develop the work that we're doing. So for me, narratives are everything. Yeah. Like how do you present and talk about your work, especially in a 
in a development architectural design world is just it's so important how yeah. do you communicate that in an accessible way yeah and that's what angeli Angeli is very good at uh, telling architects uh, how to do that better. Uh, oh, we're, yeah, we're all we're all better for oh, it. Oh <laughs> yeah! So I'm really excited to have her there. Yeah. yeah. But we have speakers. You know, like our our very early ones are also friends of Richo, <laughs> like Catherine Darrenstadt was there. Uh, Anne Louis was there, like um, and last fall. So we tried to vary a little bit. Like it's hard for me not to invite all my yeah. architect friends. Yeah. <laughs> I have to. We have to vary. You know, planning, civic tech. So we try to have a good mix. So the skills are actually uh, in interdisciplinary yeah cool um I, I while you're on the show i also wanted to ask you about a, a related sort of project that that also deals with civic engagement um uh, creative grounds and and so it's a it's about um all the school closings that have happened in chicago have sort of made national news um and you know the mayor's gotten a lot of uh very good flack for <laughs> i think um but but i think uh you, you've kind of taken these these schools and sort of thought about them, mapped them, and un- understood them, and and created this kind of project. That's um, a, it's a, well, it's a lot of different things. Uh, what maybe you should explain it. <laughs> you, can, um, you can explain yeah. it better than I can. It's very <laughs> so, it's very layered, and yeah. it's just hard to think about it in in like a straightforward way. But so that's that's a project that is very dear to me because again I'm coming from public service and I you know I'm in that middle age as well that or that age uh, that I'm gonna have kids soon so I'm, I'm all these questions about public Im- social infrastructure public infrastructure are sure. important for 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 designing where I want to live in Chicago and you know schools for me are the first step in your in your life to have access to anything right um, so when I saw, I, I was doing this like small program in the summer at Archiworks with some students from Mexico, and I saw the news. And I, it was this was 2016. It was just last year, um, and I just couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. it had already been a couple of years since the school's closings, but I just couldn't believe how it was possible in such a beautiful and great city like Chicago that this type of catastrophe crisis was even possible. Yeah. So, um, you know, as a good architect and urban designer, I was started with the research and just trying to rationalize and present the information in a neutral way. I could never be neutral about sure. it. Sure. Um, and and trying to um, also through my practice, I tend to ask more questions than provide solutions. But mm. but and and then I. I thought, what is the question in place? Like, what can actually design do <laughs> sure. about a problem of the scale? You know, like three million square feet of building that are scattered around the city in the equivalent of plus yeah. 40 schools and uh, almost 100 acres of land. Like, mm-hmm. because you don't see it in a lump or like in one location, like the old post office that is 2.7 million square feet, yeah. you don't really notice or you're, right. it doesn't represent the scale, yeah. this well, unprecedented scale. Yeah, and particularly given that um, uh, wh- where the schools actually closed, right? Like, uh, you know, they're... they're um, in, in areas of the city that you know are are, are th- that are uh, totally underserved and o- and overlooked um, in, in 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 the media and everything else. Luckily, like a lot of the independent media has kept a spotlight on these things, but um, um, there's there's also that kind of you know the the problematic of Chicago's segregation that that you have to talk about. I think right. in relation to these things, and also you know that's an opportunity for me. The closings wasn't 
like closing the buildings, like closing、mm. school wasn't necessarily the problem in place. It's like okay, if you if you're gonna do this, you have to get you have to have a really good plan. Right. Like it, it cannot be possible that five years later. Almost half of the buildings are still to be sold, and other, you know, even though the buildings that have been sold haven't been repurposed. So, if you're gonna make a move that bold, right,、uh, you have to have a very good plan, not just a plan, a、yeah. very, very good plan. And I just was frustrated that in a city that has great plans, this, <laughs> there was no plan for this one. So,、um, I started this initiative called Creative Grounds,、uh, and the name comes from, you know, when you start mapping. This thing in a GIS layer,、uh, it's called. They're called school grounds. That's、yeah. the layer. That's the name <laughs> of the layer. So if they're not schools, what are they going to be? Yeah. I don't know. We don't know yet. Many of them are becoming、um, uh, housing.、Uh, many,、um, all, some other of them are becoming、um, community centers. Very、mm-hmm. few of them. Some of them are in limbo because you know they they get bought, but plans change. Resources are、uh, scarce. So there's a lot of Inconsistency of knowing what a good model for repurposing is,、mm. and、um, and I just was、um, interested in supporting from the design perspective. So the question became: How could design help、uh, contribute to amplify, accelerate、um, the repurposing of schools? Sure.、Um, it's not that we have all the answers, but I'm sure design has some capacity to support some of the efforts that are ongoing,、right. or or just provide scenarios and ideas of occupation, even though if temporary in、yeah. some cases. So,、um, you know, it was there was a research component like the mapping.、Um, I've been working in a couple of exhibitions this year. The first one at the cultural center to just talk about the scale and raising awareness. I、mm-hmm. was really I was really shocked that、um, by the time I started learning about it about this, there was not a lot of media. There was not a lot of conversation. There wasn't even like a public forum, like a、yeah. consistent one. It all had become a real estate transaction process, and that was very sad. Yeah. So. So、um, you know, when there's no, I was in this.、Um, I was. I remember I was in this lecture or talk by Philip Glass, the composer, piano player,、uh, one day, and he was talking the story of his life basically, and he said, "Well, if you arrive to a restaurant and there's no table." <laughs> Well, just bring your own table and sit down <laughs> and have your meal. It was a very silly、um, uh, comment, but it made me realize, you know, sometimes we feel powerless when things out of the scale, and just start somewhere. Yeah. And and do something, and and some folks will become interested and join you, and some others will critique you, but they'll、yeah. still talk about the work.、Sure. So, any any type of reaction and 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 dialogue that that. I'm able to、um, provoke. I'm I'm happy about that. Yeah,、mm-hmm. yeah, that's fantastic. And and、so、one of one of the other interesting things about this this kind of work,、um, I think I think a lot of people are hungry to do it. And if if you bring a table, right, people come and sit down with you.、Um, but but you know, it's also hard because this is the kind of thing that you know, you know even in Chicago. Fifty years ago, you know, you can critique it or whatever, but you know, architects were getting paid to do this. Schools were getting paid to kind of do this work by the city governments, right? In in very big and direct ways. You had like the South Side Development Corporation, which kind of was was a venue that did this. And the you know, the architecture is whatever. You can Sarah Whiting's written a ton about it, and that's a whole different episode of Buildings on Air. But but I'm I'm curious now. 
one of the difficulties of doing this kind of thing is is funding it, right? And um, um, you seem to have at least, you know, the, the project is ongoing, and so you don't have to give away all of your secrets. <laughs> but um, you know, is is it grants? Is it sort of you know just um, finding time when you can between other things that that do put food on your plate? Like uh, maybe maybe you can give some pointers to some folks who are are interested in kind of jump starting their own projects like this? That's a very good question because, you know, you, it has limitations, but also it has so much potential. So, sure. you know, the, the, the low-hanging fruit is always a grand strategy, yeah. right? Like, what are the, the resources available that are aligned with the mission or the purpose? So that's uh, this 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 last program that we did was supported by the Chicago Architecture Biennial, which mm. was very timing for mm. me. I wanted to do it anyways, and that opportunity of, of a grand uh, of a grand um, emerged. So that was very good timing. But then um, I also treat it as a project. You know sure. how other firms, like not architect firms, but law firms or other type of businesses, dedicate a percentage of hours for pro bono. So I treat it as a project, and I yeah. have to be very smart on how to use those hours. Right. Um, the other component, I would say, so that yeah, there's hours from my time that go directly, let's say, recorded into sure. that kind of work of of course i always go beyond them but okay. <laughs> um but the other thing i would say is partnerships uh. and that that was part of our the earlier conversation right so we all have a really strong professional networks and right. we all are anchor into different institutions organizations they have something to to contribute with with this kind of project so um the first program that i orchestrated was not could not have been possible be uh without our, my partners. So that was partnering with um, Guillaume Foreman, of course, the developer of the school that allows us, allowed us to, to run the program with uh, good friends from the and members of the board of yeah. Docomomo, yeah. uh, from a really good colleague that I met recently, actually. Um, it, this was a great connection that I made through some research from CAPE, uh, which stands for Chicago Artists uh, Partnerships in Education, who brought the work of the high mm. school students from Williams Prep, and I got to meet two yeah. of the professors. So it's a lot of partnerships. Yeah. And you know, a lot of my energy most of the time goes to that. Sure. Like <laughs> I, if you, if you see half of my projects are in collaboration with, <laughs> right. in collaboration with, Paul Aguirre in collaboration <laughs> with, because I just don't see, yes. well, one, yeah. um, the results are much more interesting. Yeah. It's th the amount of energy that goes to collaborations, it's greater than if you would do it alone. Sure. But it's also much more rewarding. Yeah. So your your shortcomings will be compensated or uh, amplified by others that have much more yeah. skills in other areas that you don't, or yeah. contacts, or, you know, it's just, I just feel dedicated time to that idea of creating partnerships yeah. um we talk about it very lightly or uh but it, it's very important and and just requires time and energy yeah yeah you must have a very good strategy for organizing your email inbox <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it goes a little crazy and you know i don't know i don't know if i'm organized enough but i i i i, I I am very diligent following up with people and creating relationships. Yeah. So anytime I meet someone, I, I really invest in relationships. I, that's my that's my currency. Yeah. Like honestly, what we create as individuals or professionals, um, it, our work speaks a lot of what we are, what we stand for. But our relationships are it's our currency. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and so it's it's a really good point, and um, I'm I'm curious with the I think the event that you were referring to is the the openings closings event, right? right? So w- what happened there? What were some of the the results from that? Um, how what what how did it shape a conversation yeah, um, or start was, one? Yeah. That was a really good demo. Uh, <laughs> I call it a demonstration project because yeah. that was the aim of of the project from the beginning. You know, yeah. trying to. use information to communicate, raise awareness, but eventually create demonstration projects that would activate, in this case, temporarily, um, um, Overton, former Anthony Overton Elementary. Mm. Um, So there were different pieces to that that were like like bringing previous work that was generated um, by by high school students, but also bringing new work. And that was a, a map of Chicago that we created, that I created in collaboration with volunteers. Um, some of my students from the School of the Art Institute were participating, but it was a giant map of Chicago, the scale of a parking lot, to, um, well, not only talk about the issue of the plus 40 schools, um, but talk about location. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, like really what you tap into. It's about geography. Mm-hmm. And if we are not paying attention where these closings are happening, it means you don't know in what Chicago are you living at all? Right. So it was very interesting to see the reactions. You know, in addition to learning about the building, that was a beautiful Perkinson Will, 1963 modern building uh, that it's important to to rehab. Um, it was about learning how this one school mm. was part of a network of 43. Yeah. So um, that was part of the new pieces. Um, there was some more information inside the building. So the idea of providing access, navigating the building, uh, we were able to connect to some of the previous staff and teachers. So that was really, really great. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, the, the question is like, what do we do now? Um, I'm still recovering from a lot of that <laughs> organizing. Sure. I'm, not a, I'm not a community organizer or an events planner by any means, but we all dabble with those kind of skills to, to get um, across the messages and work in the projects we want. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm curious what what comes next for it. Um, and and uh, yeah, the the buildings are. Can we talk about the architecture for a second? You yeah, mentioned for sure. you mentioned the building, and it's really beautiful. Um, it's a really amazing building, and you wonder you like look at it, and you're like, oh my god, like h- how is this not occupied like instantly with something? Like how did how of all the schools to pick to close, why did they pick this one? It's incredible. Um, yeah, the Overton School, but but really all, all, all of those all of those buildings were, were were amazing. Well, in addition to architecture, you know, uh, well that building was sold for three hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars, which is when you <laughs> think about it, it's a joke. But no one talks about the capital cost of uh, that will take to uh, bring the building up to code, sure. to rehab, to you know just activate again, which is going to be close to eight million. So that equation becomes completely. Yeah. Um, you know, polarize. Uh, and yes, I mean, ultimately, all these buildings were uh, a source of pride and, and investment of and believing in social infrastructure. So they were yeah. beautiful. They are beautiful. And some of them, you know, the the old ones are being repurposed into beautiful luxury apartments. Right. Um, that that should be the the future of many of these old schools. Is you know, it's questionable, but right. um, it's it's a it's architecture of high quality. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting, and it, it seems kind of like if if uh, if we've maybe lost that that sort of 
feeling of civicness that uh, merits public investment, then hopefully this connects us to the thing that we were talking about in the beginning, the City Open Workshops. We hope so. Yes, and um, it can become a self-perpetuating cycle. Um, it's worth asking the question. It is. Loud. Absolutely. <laughs> and constantly. <laughs> and constantly, yeah. Well, that's a good place to end. Uh, Paula, thank you so much for coming on Buildings on Air. I'm glad we could finally make it happen. Thank you. Yeah, and we'll be back after a break with the famous Buildings on Air mailbag segment. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. I'm joined in the studio by Ann Louie and Craig Reschke uh, of Future Firm. We're doing the mailbag like we do every month. It's my favorite my favorite thing about Buildings on Air. I always look forward to Best it. Best part of our month. Yeah, how are you guys doing? <laughs> Good. Thanks for having us back. We missed you last month. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a quite. Uh, there's there's some silent cheering. <laughs> there's fist silent cheering, happening in the fist studio. pumping in the studio. Um, uh, 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 we have a visual prop that, and this works so well on radio. <laughs> having <laughs> visual props. <laughs> is, is, is this the uh, completed porch? This is the famous future firm Let's porch. Let's not say completed. <laughs> <laughs> the, the in progress, in still not connected to the power grid. Yeah, yeah. Porch. yeah. I, I like to think that it is. It is a. It is a certain like love child of the mailbag. Um, mm-hmm. It is a certain love child. <laughs> of the, mailbag. the mailbag is directly responsible for this porch. So I thought your listeners would want to know that the porch that is much discussed. Yes. Is actually erect yes there the, the, as erect as, as, as it ever will get any, any porch can be uh the the right amount the right amount the, the, the railing is at powder coating it will be installed yeah. on monday i hope Woo. it's harley davidson black i said that as i a believe joke, it is okay, i believe excellent. it is yeah. uh, bobby actually called us up and, and said hey can you come over and approve this matte black and i was like that yeah, of course, yeah <laughs> i certainly can yeah that's i think it's gonna look good it's fantastic. Yeah, well, we'll have to like tweet a photo of the sh- uh, of of the porch. Oh uh, yeah, or something in the, the windows. That's, always, that's yes. the most irritating thing that I hear on radio shows when they're like, "Now go to our website to see a picture yeah. of this thing," and I'm like, oh, "I'm never going to remember to do that." <laughs> well, I mean, if you've got your phone with you and you you know you're listening to the show, you could you could see it. I guess. Yeah. I think this this show is is a, it's a it's a culty enough show to where I think our listeners will do it. <laughs> but um, I don't know. I could be wrong. You'll have to tweet at me. Um, Maybe you can tweet out the picture on the buildings on air Twitter. Yes, that's what that's what will happen. Yeah. yeah. So so uh, let's let's dive in. I've got questions. Uh, you guys have answers. Um, I. Uh, We'll we hope. <laughs> allegedly, and yeah. I don't. I don't have too many really goofy ones, but but I always say that, and then I'm quickly proven wrong. Um, but but let's start with one that's pretty straightforward. Um, why are there no house toilets that are as uncloggable as the ones in public restrooms? Oh wait, now you could say your thing about the water guy at the Department of Buildings that you've been wanting to say uh, publicly all week. Mm, mm. <laughs> this is like every day, every day. Uh, okay. Life well, of Anna well, Craig's really romantic <laughs> relationship. <laughs> let's let's first answer the question, and oh, yeah. then we can, and then we can, uh, and then we can talk about the water department, which is amazing. Uh, we have do, a, we have a want... shout out. <laughs> no, you know everything about this. You should say it. Okay, I am the I am the uh, the future firm uh, plumbing drawer. Okay. Uh, the different <laughs> that job sounds like uh, <laughs> drawer was yeah. a, a weird word. Dras, Sorry, dras person. I, I okay. just okay. So there are two types of uh, toilets that are commonly specified. One is uh, a flush tank, and that's what you have in most residential 
buildings when there's a tank on the back of the toilet that fills with water and when you pull the lever it opens a valve at the bottom of the tank and that water goes into the bowl and then flushes everything down um, down over the trap of the toilet in many commercial spaces we use something called a flush valve where there's no tank and the water goes directly from the plumbing system into the toilet in order for that to function you need a lot more pressure so the what we call fixture units, which is how we measure the size of plumbing in buildings. <laughs> the FUs. Yeah. Yes, the FUs. <laughs> um, is, and I don't Very know childish. That, there's, <laughs> We're 12 years old. <laughs> uh, there are, I think you, there are two, two FUs for, uh, for a regular uh, flush, um, flush tank in a residential building. There are more if it's in a commercial building because it's going to be used more often and needs to fill up faster. Um, and I'm, I think it's four maybe for a, a flush valve. Yeah. But basically it is a, it is a bigger pipe with more water available that um, that causes that flushing power. Yeah. Okay, okay. Now say the thing about the water management. <laughs> well, hold, hold on. I, I, can I just interject as somebody that manages a commercial space that I guarantee you these toilets clog. Okay, every <laughs> single night they clog, all right? Every night. So to the to the listener who wrote in saying, oh, you know, these public toilets never seem to clog. The reason is because there's a guy with a plunger coming <laughs> after you guys yeah. and unclogging it. okay? So, just just uh, because you're not plunging doesn't mean it is not just plunged. Be, just because I am not in your public toilet, there is someone <laughs> like a Jamie who is there with a plunger. <laughs> One of the very first events Ann and I had at our office was... Uh, with had, a regular regular residential toilet and yeah yeah it re- required a lot of plunging at, throughout but we had the just event. moved in so we didn't have a plunger but luckily it was Bridgeport so I knocked on all my neighbors doors who I didn't know yet and said can I borrow a plunger where are your new neighbors and we already clogged the toilet during our first gallery event um, yeah a learning machine lent me a plunger thanks thanks shout out to them yeah <laughs> uh, oh so do, are we going to talk about the water yes. department so this is this is more arcane building code knowledge. The, our favorite kind. There are every uh, we I think we all read a, a lot about this when the kind of water crisis was going on in Flint. But the the city provides a water main in the middle of the street, and then there's something called a water service that goes from the water main to your building. Which even though it is in the public way, it is your responsibility. And in Chicago, that often just comes right into the front of the building because the building's along the street. In other suburban areas, that water mains like going across your property until it gets to your yard. Um, and when you, whenever you're renovating a building or adding more um, more plumbing fixtures, you need to make sure that 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 service is the correct size. And you can one thing you can do is measure that if you are on site and you can find it. Um, the other way that you can find out is you can call the water department and you can ask them what size it is because they have records. And the the plan reviewers in the Department of Buildings have access to all of this information and they often correct my drawings and say, hey, this is wrong, like the records say it's this. Supposedly, and the building code says very clearly that you can call the um, Department of Water Management and they will tell you where to, um, they will tell you the size, the PSI in the street, like all of this information yeah. you need to engineer the plumbing system. So for one of our projects, I needed to know this information. Like we weren't on site um, at the time. So I was like, oh, I'll just call water management and figure this out. And of course, you like call the city bureaucracy and it took 
probably like 45 phone calls to a lot of people that were very confused about what I was calling for. And I was like, the billing code says you guys know this information. Um, So it's kind of like banging my head against the wall for a long time. And then um, after I'd kind of given up on it, two days later, I got a call back from this like amazing plumbing engineer at the Department of Water that was like, oh, like, here's the information. Here's the PSI. Yeah. It was, like, tested at this I time. His name? I already forgot um, his name. You can call me whenever you want. Him. Like, I'm happy to, like, give you all of this information. Fantastic. So I feel like every time I'm just about to lose it with Chicago bureaucracy, then we we run into someone fabulous yeah. like this person. A success story. But yeah, perhaps if we find his information, we can we can uh, give him a, a shout Wait, out. Wait, I know his name. Is it polite for me to say his, is it polite and legal for me to give him a shout out? <laughs> his name is Andrew McFarland and he's our hero, our, our bureaucratic yeah. hero of the day. Yeah, we need this. We yeah, need this. Like, I, we would maybe, like to award we, him something. This is should be a built, this should be a corollary to the mailbag is the, the award for the people <laughs> in the city who are holding <laughs> things together and making better. making it better yes. yeah we we should give them an award i did tweet at the aia the other day that i want them to start giving out awards to the um to department of building plan reviewers at yeah. design night oh interesting yeah huh. well what would w- you call the award <laughs> the you were kind to me in my moment of need award <laughs> the the airy or something <laughs> your, your show no yeah the airy the that's airy. Yeah. airy that's good yeah all yeah. right, this is a scheme. Yeah. All right. So Andrew McFarland, you're the first ever airy winner. Oh, yeah. winner. <laughs> I, w- I would give out his phone number, but then no. like hundreds of uh, <laughs> architects desperate to know their no, plumbing do, service, no. <laughs> like that would that would be like the reverse of an award. Yeah. Like you were yes. kind to somebody, and then they yeah. ruined your life by saying your phone number out right. <laughs> on Don't the phone. And we'll <laughs> we'll send him we'll send him a certificate that is as poorly designed as our license certificates are. Um, <laughs> With a dash line what around a, what it. What a it's joke for four people to laugh at. Um, anyway, <laughs> shall we move on to the describes my yeah Twitter. right? Should we should we move on to the next question? This is one of my favorite questions that I've ever gotten into the mailbag. Um, can I carport the entire driveway? Basically, I want to make a carport to cover my entire U-shaped driveway. Why hasn't anybody done this? Why make a roof over your driveway just for the car? Why not just cover the whole driveway? This is like galaxy brain meme level thinking. Instead of just having a carport, he wants to extend the carport in a tubular fashion over the entire driveway. I'm making a really skeptical look because I'm having trouble imagining the architectural and urban condition that you are describing. And you are both nodding, Wait. so I suspect it's like <laughs> some sort of suburban America thing that I just have not no, seen before. No, is this not Villa Savoie? It is. It is a U-shaped right. driveway that is completely covered. I, I mean, it's covered by the house, but... Villa Savoie's current... Uh, yeah, can... Is this... It's not a Chicago condition. No, this is this would be a rarity in Chicago. There Your is house one is here. house in the neighborhood that I can think of on Wallace that's on a triple lot that has it's a ranch home on a triple lot with a U shaped driveway. Like, there, a U shaped driveway is like a drop off, yeah. like a hotel drop off to your own McMansion. Yes, yes. Yeah. they've yeah. got car. Well, they do have like on um, uh, Clark and Goethe, they're at the yeah. uh, Sandberg homes. They have a U shaped driveway do. with a carport. That covers it. Oh, it's yeah. for rain for the residents. So I don't think yeah. it's that unusual. I'm like, no. I mean, but, I guess but I was like nodding kind of because the idea of having one house. for your single family house really <laughs> tickles me. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm down with it. Whoever this guy is, yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess I feel like if you have a U shaped drop off, like the world is already your oyster. Go for it. Carport <laughs> yeah, it. Do whatever what you saying. want. Yeah. Pave your toilet and you know whatever <laughs> diamonds. I think, I think it would not be called a carport at that point. Then no, right? it would be called some 
sort of a port it, and, cochet. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's literally that carported French. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> for, for the record. <laughs> I guess I knew that, but I didn't really know that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes. Okay. Yeah. There's it's... a funny tweet about je ne sais quoi, where the guy sa- <laughs> says. Do you know what that means? And she says, I don't know. And then he says, yes, it means uh, something something that I just can't quite fit down. Yeah, we know. <laughs> we know. It's really funny. Um, all right, well, I this thought... This show's really gone off the rails. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, here's, here's another question. Why do American houses have so little lights? Uh, they have, like, small bulbs on the ceilings and lots of table lamps. Why don't they just use fluorescent lights in every room? Wouldn't that be much brighter? Oh. Uh, I guess so. It might be much uglier. Yeah. <laughs> well, lighting, you know, it is not always the most brightest is best. You know, ha- have you been on a on a romantic date in, in a restaurant where perhaps you wanted a little bit of cover of darkness? You know, have you like... been on a romantic ra- date in a restaurant lately? <laughs> no, you and I only eat at fr- brightly lit fluorescent <laughs> restaurants. I mean, uh, yes, like one might want a range of lighting brightnesses yeah. and colors and temperatures and atmospheres. But I, I, go ahead. I guess I was going to say I think there is something about uh, like more contemporary designs have more electricity available, have like more J boxes where you could add new lights or kind of come up with new lighting conditions. Older buildings, especially in Chicago, just don't have that. They weren't uh, designed and built with that yeah. kind of power supply. I always think it's interesting, like how highly cultural like lighting needs are. Like mm. uh, they vary. Like if you look at the code requirements for how many lumens, uh, like how much light mm. you need on a work surface, it's like wildly different. Mm. And and I, I always found that fascinating. Well, Craig, Craig and I do go on this this date off into Shy Cafe, which I think is like the most brightly lit restaurant that I've ever been in. And I think, um, you know, like I, I feel like culturally Chinese yeah. restaurants tend to be brighter is hmm. a superficial yeah. and overgeneralized observation. Yeah. I do have a question. What do you guys think about sort of because um, one of the one of the things that makes fluorescent light really like harsh is it just has bad a bad color temperature mm-hmm. and um but now do you with, want to explain to your listeners what color temperature yeah is? color temperature it's um uh yeah, yeah. yeah it's either if the light feels more blue or yellow um that's kind of the spectrum although it can also be sort of like greenish um but the, co- the color temperature is measured in kelvins and that's what it so whenever you see like a I don't know, 7,000K like uh, bulb um, that is an in- indicator of color temperature. I don't know if that's the actual value. I'm probably wildly wrong. But well, 3,500 is about standard yeah. for like a uh, quite white LED. Yeah, thank you, Craig. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, something we've been sad about is the fact that the city has been replacing all its um, street lights with LED lights. And like, yeah. that's the case on our street. Yeah. And I, on one hand, it is like incredibly bright and I think probably uh, higher performing and like more sustainable. But like somehow the... The feel of the city at night has been changing slowly but surely in a way in the city that is like mm. kind of unnoticeable until it lands on your street. But then like soon we will be the only ones who remember this kind of like yellow casted light in Chicago yeah. over all the residential streets. Well, an interesting thing about Chicago is that um, the halogen lights that Chicago used previously, which are the very orange ones, Chicago is one of the like few cities to really implement this mm. like on a very uh, wide scale because uh, it was like the 
when Chicago was uh, replacing their streetlights. That was the kind of current technology. Yeah. Uh, but if you fly, like you'll notice flying in or out of Chicago at night, that you can you can very clearly see the outline of the city because the, all the suburban municipalities have like a very white light. Mm. And then Chicago has a very orange light. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite quite beautiful, I think. Um, and yeah, I, but one one of the things about LEDs is that they kind of def- default to a blue color, but you can change the color quite easily. And one of the byproducts of that is that you can buy daylight color bulbs. So daylight has a color temperature, and um, that uh, they they get advertised quite a bit, especially you know in, in in winter they sound really appealing, right? You're like, oh man, mm-hmm. like it'd be nice to have a daylight bulb, and that's supposed to be good for you and everything. But if you ever put them in, they just they make everything look awful. I guess that's I have a quite like, what do you guys think about these daylight bulbs? I I that's my question to you. <laughs> I, I guess I have yeah. not actually installed one. Yeah, and I don't think I've been under one. Okay. Well, so <laughs> sorry. We don't. Buildings has end. no verdict on daylight bulbs. <laughs> I, can yes, yes, I that believe actually you are under a daylight oh. bulb. I uh, believe it is. That is yeah. Right. But we are also like uh, next to bright neon light, which is you know the Bridgeport vibe. Yeah. Right. It's well, at the Co Prosperity Store at least. Yes. Right. Yeah. Wait. Did we answer the question? I kind of forgot what it was. Um, it's about carports. More about it. You're all good, guys. <laughs> Uh, move, shall we move on to another one? Um, let's see. Yeah, we have. Time. Yeah, you got we about have, five minutes. Time for one more. Yeah. So uh, this is this is a Christmas related question. Um, <laughs> hanging Christmas lights outside with super glue. So last year when I was hanging my Christmas lights on my exterior wall that has a sandpaper kind of texture, the command clips I used did not stick to the surface. So I decided that it might be a good idea to use super glue. Would this hang them up on this kind of surface? And when I go to take my decorations down in January, do I have anything? Do I have to do anything to remove the super glue? Will it be easy to take them down without damaging them. <laughs> I don't think you should super glue anything to the side of your house. Yeah. yeah. Especially what sounds like a stucco, oh, yeah, stucco, stucco surface yeah. or like yeah. an yeah. if system. It will take the paint off or at least there's a strong likelihood. Well, won't it, it also bond to the, the masonry? If it's like a kind of a masonry stucco finish, the super glue bonds to that stuff because it's yeah. used to weld ceramics. Yes. And yeah. it will so you take big chunks out. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. It will damage the command strips as well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What is the what is the best way to affix Christmas lights to your the exterior of a building? I've not thought of it. I literally have no idea. I have no experience with this. Can I just say when I was like eight years old, I told my dad I had this amazing invention of gutters <laughs> with integrated Christmas lights. <laughs> you could have been rich. <laughs> um, I don't know. What is the? I guess. Uh, can we talk about your gutter idea integrating Christmas <laughs> yeah, it's lights? Brilliant. So like it's because I grew up in the suburbs, so I just assumed every house had had gutters. I right, guess. right. So like year round, you wouldn't turn them on, but then like at Christmas, you could, and they would already be up there because usually people do hang them from the gutter. I think that's yeah. correct. Like yeah. most Christmas lights come with like a little clip. A little on clip. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I mean, that's usually used on clapboard, though, isn't it? And then you can right. sometimes tuck them under the clapboards. Mm. I don't know how you do it on stucco. I think you'd have to probably hang them off the gutter. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, just why bother? Just don't, <laughs> yeah. just don't do it. Yeah. Get, get an inflatable <laughs> yeah. snowman and call it. Uh, yeah. Well, well you, I'm you mostly thinking like in Chicago with yeah. like the kind of typical brick two flat with a parapet. What would be the best way to hang them? I guess like with string and a brick that is sitting on the other side of the parapet. Yeah. Sure. Or or if uh, you had. Um, you, 
you could probably put affix something to the windowsill on um, uh, the exterior windowsill. You know, it's usually stone, but then you could like put a weight on maybe or something mm -hmm. that's um, you know. I don't know. Well, people on this street usually do it in the windows, so yeah. you see it, but it's inside, not outside. Because, mm. I mean, true. it's really hard to get up on these two and three and four story brick yeah. buildings. Yeah. Not at Kiefer's house. Yes, that's true. Ooh, we should hang something <clears throat> from your roof for Christmas. Yeah. Let's do some kind of light installation. <laughs> we will, yes. And, uh, <laughs> and we'll tweet a picture. <laughs> and we'll tweet a picture, yes. Yeah. Um, Hopefully, your landlord doesn't listen to this show. Yeah, yeah right. Sorry, Kiefer has an amazing roof. <laughs> Well, I think that rounds out our time uh, here on Buildings on Air. And Craig, thanks for joining us. Um, until next month, um, and we'll have more questions for you on the mailbag. You can send those in. Um, tweet them at the show, at BLDGS on Air. You guys have any last-minute closing thoughts? I do. Let's send in your nominations for, you know, uh, city city uh, civil servant of, uh, of your record. Your area awards? Yes. Your area yeah. Award. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of note. Yes. Of note. Fantastic. Well, um, thanks, Producer Jamie, for uh, bearing with us on this busy day that you have. Um, oh, no problem. And uh, If you see me collapse in the street, know that. Know that uh, <laughs> we'll drag you back <laughs> in no, and put no you that back I'm to work. Drunk. I'm just tired. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thanks for listening, y'all. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay and Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at BLDGS on air or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.